Uh, we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 3, verses uh, 14 to 21 this morning. If you've got a Bible, uh, get over to Ephesians chapter 3. Several years ago, I read an article about a man named Garth Callaghan, who lives in Virginia. And uh, like a lot of dads, he had a habit of uh, periodically writing little notes on his daughter's napkin when she would take her lunch to school. Uh, he started this when she was in about second grade, and as time went on, uh, it became something he did every day, even after she was making her own lunch. He would write a note on her napkin, and uh, the notes ranged from humorous concepts to philosophical concepts to things as simple as, I love you, have a great day. But he began to do this every day, and then uh, right around 2011, when she was 12 years old, Garth Callaghan, in his early 40s, was diagnosed with terminal cancer. And uh, he was told he may only have a few months or years left to live. And so uh, in his uh, grief and processing that diagnosis, but also out of love for his daughter and his family, he decided, he started to think, what can I do to leave a legacy to my daughter? And so he, he counted up the days, Garth Callaghan counted up the days from where she was in seventh grade until she was going to graduate high school, figured out how many school days that she had left. And he said, I'm going to write a napkin note for every single day over the next six years so that if I die, she will still have a note from me in her lunchbox every day from here on out through high school. 826 napkin notes. That was just the stockpile of notes he was trying to arrange. He continued to write one every day in addition to stockpiling the 826. Now, he managed to survive, actually, until she graduated from high school. But I read an article about uh, his napkin note journey, and here's what he said. This isn't a story about cancer, because any parent at any time could be hit by a car or have a heart attack. And he said, this is really about leaving a legacy so that she can understand some of my life philosophies and how much I love her. Now, I read that and I thought, surely she understands now how much her dad loves her, right? Do you think this young woman, Emma, understands how much her dad loves her, that he took that time and that energy to write down over and over and over again his philosophies of life, but also how much he loved her and place it in her lunchbox every single day? I have to think, surely she knows how much he loves her. And also, I thought, you know, is that going to have an impact on her life? What kind of impact would it have on somebody's life to have this sort of bedrock assurance that my father loves me that much? Would that change the way that she interacts with people? Would that change the way she approaches her career? Would that change the way she approaches the opposite sex? I have to think that it would have a profound and dramatic impact on her life to understand my dad loves me. Now, the reason I share that is because as we read the Bible, there's no doubt that from beginning to end of the Bible, God is writing a series of notes to you and me fundamentally to say, I love you. Right? In fact, at the heart of the scripture, I think the reason we are given the scripture at all is because God loves us. I think the reason at its heart that God chose to create the universe and create mankind is because in the Trinity there existed such an overflow of love between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that God says we want to expand this love and make creatures like us who will reflect us in love and in holiness. 
And so in creation, God continues this cycle of love. And then when mankind rebelled against God in sin, God reaches out in love to save people who rebelled against God. And so from Genesis to Revelation, you have a story of the enduring and infinite love of God culminating in the book of Revelation with God's people living in God's presence in the midst of his glory, surrounded by his love forever and ever and ever. Right? That's the story of the scripture. And the book of Ephesians, you might look at the book of Ephesians as a microcosm, as a small version of that giant story. And as we've been walking through the book of Ephesians, you may remember that the first three chapters of the book of Ephesians really are just laying the groundwork. Remember, we talked about there's only one command in all of the first three chapters of Ephesians, and it's simply to remember. Remember what God has done for you in Jesus Christ, right? The first three chapters of the book of Ephesians are really not a practical manual of how to be good or how to do the right thing, but instead, the first three chapters are this beautiful story of how much God loved you in Jesus Christ. And as we get to the end of these first three chapters, the end of this first half of the book of Ephesians, what the Apostle Paul does is he's going to summarize verses 14 to 21 here with a prayer. And he's going to say, now that you understand the story of God's love, how the gospel displays the love of God in Jesus Christ so perfectly, he's going to say, now, here's what I pray for you. And Paul lays out this prayer, and fundamentally at the heart of the prayer, we're going to see this, is that Paul says, I want you to know how big God's love is. Paul says, I want you to know that you have a father who loves you. And as we round the corner into talking about what we're going to do in response in verses four th- or chapters 4 through 6, Paul says, before I give any practical instruction, I just pray that you would deeply know that whatever else has happened in your life, you have a Father who loves you. I want you to know the length and the breadth and the width and the depth of the love of God, which surpasses all comprehension. Let me read Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 to 21, and then I want to make a few comments before we dive into an outline this morning. Starting in verse 14. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. Now, this for this reason, let me mention, this goes back to verse 1. Of chapter 3. Paul had done something he does quite a lot. He started a sentence in verse 1 and then he interrupted himself for about 11 verses. And then he comes back here in verse 14. He says, okay, for this reason, let me get back to what I was saying. And the reason goes back to this, that God in Jesus Christ has united us to God. He's reconciled us to God. He's reconciled us to one another. And he's making this new nation, this new church composed of people who are restored to God and now are able to worship together. And he says, for that reason, here's what I do. I fall on my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. You think of a household. And you get your name from where? From your father, right? So my kids, their last name is Morton. My last name is Morton because my dad's last name is Morton, right? And he says, look, in the scheme of the universe, we all get our name from God. Every family, 
Every nation, every tribe, every ethnicity, male and female, Jew and Greek, slave or free, we all get our name from God. And he says, that is the Father that I bow before. And here's what he prays. He says that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in the inner man. In other words, I pray the Holy Spirit would make you strong. Why? So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And he uses this word dwell. Okay, he's not talking about, here's what I pray, that you would become a Christian. This word dwell has the idea of I settle down. I live somewhere and I'm at home there, right? Whenever Shannon and I have moved into a new apartment or a new house throughout our life, uh, we are not at home in her eyes until the pictures are on the wall and the pillows are on the sofas, right? For me, as soon as the boxes are in the, in the door, I'm good, right? I can go to sleep. But she says, no, I want to be at home, not just have a place to sleep, right? That's the imagery here, that Christ may dwell in your hearts, that he will make his home in your heart, that your faith will be strengthened. And then watch this, he says, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth And to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge. I love that. He wants you to know something that surpasses knowledge. I want you to know it more deeply, but make no mistake, you're never going to know it fully. He says, I want you to know how big it is so that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. That is so that the church of Jesus Christ will be filled up to all the fullness of God. And this is going to result in an overflow of love, not only amongst one another, but out into the world. And what Paul does is he says, look, I want you to picture the love of God like a big giant box. And I want you to know how wide it is, how long it is, how deep it is. I want you to know the height and the width and the length and the breadth of the love of God like this enormous box that's bigger than you can imagine. And he's going to end this section of Ephesians saying now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. He says, I just have to take a moment and praise the God who made us and gave us this love and it's so much bigger than we can think or imagine. That's the love of God in Jesus Christ. And at the heart of this prayer, Paul says, before Before we move on, before I give you any commands, before I say, look, walk in humility, walk in love, do anything, here's what I want you to understand. God loves you with a love that is bigger than you can even fathom. Where does Paul end the first section of the book of Ephesians? Well, he ends fundamentally with something that you learned as a toddler. Jesus loves me. This I know. Now, yes, for the Bible tells me so, but he says, I pray the Spirit of God would tell you so as well. Jesus loves me. Would that make a difference in your life and mine? If, like Paul says, we were rooted and grounded in love. Right? Rooted, that's an agricultural metaphor. Think of a tree with deep roots and it absorbs nourishment and life from the water that flows through those roots. I pray that the roots of your life would be the love of God. To be grounded, that is a construction metaphor. The foundation of your life 
is the love of God. Would it make a difference in your spiritual life if you really believed that God loved you? Would it make a difference? Right, Because the, the reality is that I think all of us wrestle at times with this question, does anybody care? Does anybody love me? Right? Even if you grew up in a good home with loving parents, that question still rattles across the back of your mind over and over and over again, right? Because we enter into a world that is not full of love. Right? I grew up in a good home. I had parents that loved Jesus and they loved me and they told me they loved me. And yet when I entered into junior high, I found that in my soul and mind, there was this longing for the love of my peers, right? I wanted to be loved. I wanted to be liked. And so I remember standing in front of the mirror and I worked on my hair for an inordinate amount of time, right? And and I'm not making this up. And I realize I'm a dude and that's weird, but I spent a lot of time on my hair, which used to be curly, right? It's no longer that way, right? I've reached that point where it's like, it is what it is. But back then, I thought, man, if I could just look right, I practiced jokes in front of the mirror so that I could impress my friends, right? Because I knew that I couldn't run fast or throw far, but I could be funny, right? And all of that sprang from this longing to be loved. What about you? What about you? Where is it that you say, you know what, I I have this need to be loved and the sin habits and the pride and the patterns of my life bear that out, right? For some people, they reach out for love in unhealthy ways, right? In, in, In the form of perhaps inappropriate sexuality, right? So you reach out thinking, if I can just connect with another person physically, I will feel loved, Right, this past week, the big news was, of course, that Hugh Hefner died. Right, and as you read about this man's life, you can't help but feel this just this deep sadness along with the revulsion. Because here was a man who seemed convinced that sex equals love. And if I can just connect with enough people physically, maybe I will fill this void. And maybe the reality is you go, I'm not that extreme. But you know whether on a screen or in real life, you find yourself reaching out for love that you don't feel at the core of your being. For some people, it is, I don't feel loved, so maybe I will just numb the pain. And so they engage in substance abuse or drinking or whatever it may be. For others, you say, I don't feel loved, but I know if I get onto social media, I can at least feel liked. Several hundred times. And so we craft an image, don't we? I can't can't tell you, I probably can't count the number of times that I've talked with somebody who has privately said, look, my my marriage has fallen apart, my my world is in turmoil, my kids are a mess, and then you go onto Facebook and there's a glowing post about how perfect their marriage is. Because the pain of feeling unloved privately results in a public desire to grasp at approval. And so we craft an image. We look at that selfie a hundred times. And we take it again and again. 
Because at the core of our being, what we're doing often is we are reaching out to get other people to love us. Instead of being rooted and grounded in the love of Christ. And I think what Paul is getting at here, right at the end of Ephesians 3, is he says, look, here's what I pray. That you will be so deeply overwhelmed with the love of Christ that you will then move into a world filled with people just like us who feel unloved and share this message, you're loved. Deeply loved, unconditionally loved, permanently loved in Jesus Christ. That's been the essence of the first three chapters of the book of Ephesians. What I want to do then is take us back briefly through the first three chapters. We're not going to read them all, but I want to draw out because Paul says, I want you to know the love of Christ. I want to draw out what is it that Paul has told us about the love of Jesus Christ in these first three chapters before we round the corner where Paul says, now I want you to walk in humility and perseverance and love. What is it he has told us about the love of God in Jesus Christ that we ought to remember that we ought to allow to soak deeply into our hearts and minds. I'm going to give a few characteristics of that love as we move forward this morning. All right, the first one is this, that the love of God is unconditional. The love of God is unconditional. Going back to chapter 1, he says, He, that is God the Father, chose us in Him before the foundation of the world in love. He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself. Right? Why did God choose you? Because he loves you. What did you do for God to choose you? You did nothing. Right? God didn't look across space and time and say, you have the best hair. You have the best job. You're the smartest. You're the most attractive. You're the best personality. I choose you because you're just the coolest, right? And I think that's hard for us to understand. And here's why. Because we live in a world that is soaked with conditionality. Everywhere you and I go, the message is communicated. You are accepted if you do the right things, if you look the right way, if you say the right phrases, we'll let you in. If you have enough money, you can come into our club And yet the love of God is unconditional. Before you were born, before you were a gleam in your father's eye, before he was a gleam in his father's eye, God said, I I, I love you. And I want you because I love you. He says, in love, he predestined us to adoptions. Adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself. One of my favorite children's novels is the classic Charlotte's Web by E.B. White. I've read it with all of my kids. And the reason I love it is because it's such a beautiful illustration of unconditional love, right? If you you don't know the story, in summary, it centers on a pig, his name is Wilbur, and a spider whose name is Charlotte, right? Charlotte's Web. And what happens is early on in the book, Wilbur figures out that he is destined for the slaughterhouse. He's going to be turned into ham or bacon for Thanksgiving. And so he begins to cry, I don't want to die. And Charlotte says, cut it out. I'm going to save your life. Nobody likes the spider, right? Spiders are 
icky, they eat bugs, they're gross. But she says, Wilbur, I'm going to save your life. He goes, how are you going to do it? She says, I don't know, we'll figure something out. And you remember in the story, she begins to weave these webs that say these amazing things about Wilbur. Some pig, terrific, radiant, right? And, and the irony is Wilbur really is actually none of those things, is he? He's just a little pig. He's a runt. And eventually she succeeds in saving his life. He becomes a sensation because of her webs and they decide not to slaughter Wilbur And they allow him to live in the barn. And right at the end of the book, and this is the part that always makes me cry. I tell my kids it's just allergies every single time. As Charlotte is dying, Wilbur says this. Why did you do all this for me? I don't deserve it. I've never done anything for you. And here's what Charlotte says. You have been my friend. That in itself is a tremendous thing. I wove my webs for you because I liked you. Right? That's it. Wilbur, you didn't really do anything. I just liked you. And I wanted to do this for you. And she goes on to say, look, a spider's life isn't that great. Right? We weave our webs. We eat our bugs. She goes, if I can lift it up a little by helping you, why not? I like you. And there's this theme of this unconditionality. Wilbur loves the spider. The spider loves Wilbur for no other reason than that there's love in their hearts. That's a picture of the unconditionality of God's love which springs out and rests on you and me, not because you did anything, but simply because he loves you. Yesterday on Facebook, a friend of mine posted a picture of their one-year-old daughter and her birthday party. Right? And she's surrounded by cake and surrounded by presents. And when you think about it from an objective standpoint, a baby doesn't deserve a one-year-old birthday party. Right? What has that baby really done? Right? <laughs> nothing helpful, right? At this stage, nothing helpful. All the child has done is taken a lot of your time, a lot of your money, a lot of your sleep, filled your ears with crying until you needed a psychiatrist, right? (laughs) And yet on the birthday, you lavish that child with love, don't you? Why? You could say, look, I'm going to give you what you deserve. (laughs) But you don't. Because the love is unconditional because it's your child. That's the love of God. I think it's the closest we come on earth, honestly, to understanding the love of God. Absolutely unconditional. Right? Not only is it unconditional, but as we walk through the book of Ephesians, we also see that it is gracious. Right? It's not just that it's unconditional and I didn't do anything to deserve it. It's actually that I did everything to not deserve it. That I ran away from God and I sinned against God and I told God, I don't want your love. And yet in his grace, God said, I'm going to chase you down. And through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, I am going to give you eternal life and a relationship with me, a love you don't deserve. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, again, for by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may Remember Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 first paints this dark picture. We were dead in our transgressions and sins. 
And then you hit verse 4, and remember those two beautiful words, but God, being rich in mercy. Why? Because of his great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, what did he do? He made us alive together with Christ and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Why? Because he loved us. As a result of his grace, he chased us down and said, I want you back. When we lived in Dallas, when my wife and I lived in Dallas and we lived in an apartment complex, we at one point had two cats, one of whom we adopted from a shelter. Uh, The other one we adopted from the parking lot. Um, It was not the last time that my big-hearted wife would adopt a stray animal. And uh, so there's this cat that was living near the office to the apartment complex, and uh, it was dirty. It was a little orange tabby. It was ugly. It was mangy. Uh, and uh, it had been there for weeks. And so we asked the owners of the, or the managers, hey, does this cat belong to anybody? They said, no, it's been sitting there for a while. So we took it into our apartment where it learned to hate our other cat with a deep and ferocious passion. But uh, one day we were like, you know, we probably should take this cat to the vet because it could have all manner of diseases. We don't know. So uh, we actually decided to take both cats at one time, but we only had one little kennel box. Now, we didn't put them both in there, but what we did is we put one cat, uh, the fluffy pretty cat, in the box, and then we put uh, Francesca, was the orange cat, we put Francesca just in the car, right? Well, as soon as uh, Shannon started to drive the car away, Francesca jumped up right behind her head and started growling in a menacing tone and flexing her claws, threatening to tear Shannon's face apart. So I was actually in the other car with the other cat, and Shannon leans out and goes, you have to come help me. Right, so I come over, and I, I pick up this cat, and right as I pick it up, it hisses at me, and it scratches both of my arms. I mean, I had gouges in my arms that lasted for weeks, and then it jumped down, and it ran away. And I said, forget you, cat. Right? I'm not making it. I said, I said, Shannon, we're done with this cat. This cat has had its chance I was full of mercy and grace. I don't want it anymore. And she said, please, can we just give it one more chance? So I crawled under somebody's oily truck. And I reached under there and I grabbed that cat and I put it under my feet where I locked it together while I drove to the vet. Now, why do I tell that story? Partly because it makes me look cool, but also partly... Because that's a picture of grace, and here's why. Because you and I, in relation to God, are a whole lot like that cat. It's not just that we don't deserve the love of God. It's actually that we have actively fought against him and run away and tried to hide and said, I don't want it. Grace means unmerited favor. That's the good news of Jesus Christ. That God's Son died in our place, right? We deserved just to be left to hell and death. But Jesus took it for us and then rose again so we could have eternal life. The love of God is unconditional. The love of God is gracious. If you don't know that love, maybe this morning's the day. 
where for the first time you say, God, I trust in the gracious and unconditional love of Jesus Christ, most beautifully and perfectly expressed when Jesus died for me and rose again. I trust in Jesus for eternal life and a relationship with God. The love of God is unconditional. The love of God is gracious. The love of God is a reconciling love. If you remember when we were in chapter 2, verses 11 to 22, out of his grace, out of his love, God said, I want to restore you to me and then restore you to one another. Where you have broken relationship with me, I want to restore it to you. And he says, now you were far off, but through the blood of Jesus, God has brought you near. Remember when we talked about how as Gentiles, We were far off, separated from the covenants of God that he had made to Israel. But God said, I can't let them go. And so in Jesus Christ, he said, I want peace, peace between me and humanity and peace between Jew and Gentile. And so every tribe and tongue and nation, just like we sang this morning, is called to worship God together. That's a picture of the reconciling and forgiving love of God in Jesus Christ. That's what God did. He said, I came to preach peace, to restore where there was brokenness. And as the people of God, we talked about how you and I are then called to go into the world and be ambassadors of that peace to say there's a God who reconciled me to himself and he wants to reconcile you as well. Some of you will know the story of Corrie Ten Boom, the Dutch woman during World War II who harbored Jews in her home along with her family. And uh, Corey and her sister Betsy were sent to Ravensbrook concentration camp as a result of what they did. They were beaten, they were starved, they were abused, and her sister died in the concentration camp. When Corey was released and the war was over, she became a speaker and teacher about the love of God and the forgiveness of God. And one day she was teaching to a group in Germany in 1947, teaching eloquently about the forgiveness of God and the reconciling nature of God. And she looks out, and there was the guard from Ravensbrück. And he came up to her and he said, what wonderful news about the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. He said, I was a guard at Ravensbrück. He didn't recognize her. I was a guard at Ravensbrück, but I trusted in Jesus after the war. He said, I need to hear that you, as somebody who was there, forgive me. And she said, I couldn't do that. But she said, God help me. And she reached out and she said, I I just need the strength to take his hand and say, I forgive you. And she said, as soon as I said, I forgive you, she said, I never felt the love of God more powerfully than at that moment. To learn to forgive is an expression of the love of God. We have a friend who has struggled with this throughout her young adult life. Because when she became a Christian and decided to pursue Jesus and decided to pursue ministry, her parents, who do not believe in Jesus, resisted and for a time cut off contact with her attempted to use money to manipulate her relationship with them to the point that for for years she was not connected with either of her parents. I'll never forget one day talking with her and uh, her father had reached out and said, I'd like to 
to try again to have a relationship, right? He still had not trusted in Jesus and he had hurt her deeply. And we talked about what it might look like to forgive and to reconcile while still maintaining appropriate boundaries. And I never forget her saying, gosh, this, this imitating Jesus, it's really hard. Because when we see the perfect forgiving love of God in Jesus Christ, we recognize it's infinite. And it reconciles even the worst of sinners, like Paul himself was. I think that's why Paul writes so eloquently and beautifully about the love of God, because he'd experienced it as a persecutor of the church. Unconditional, gracious, reconciling, fourthly, permanent. Ephesians 1, 13 to 14. Having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance. A seal, remember, on an ancient document or on a, cargo, a, a box of cargo says, this is authentic and it belongs to a particular person. You can't break that seal without incurring the wrath of whosoever it is. You and I were sealed in the Spirit as a pledge that we belong to God and that eternal life is coming. The love of God is permanent. It's interesting, later on in the book of Ephesians, Paul will use marriage as an illustration of the love between Christ and the church. Right? In Romans 8, he talks about how nothing can separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ. Here in Ephesians, Paul is a bit more tangible with his illustrations, and he says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Right? And one of the ways Christ loves the church is he, he doesn't leave. He doesn't give up. He is permanent. Right, So whenever I perform a wedding ceremony these days, I will say something to this effect as I'm talking. I'll say, look, in a couple of minutes, husband and wife, you're going to take some vows. You're going to pronounce vows to one another. And in those vows are promises that you'll stay that this is, is intended to be a permanent arrangement. Now, we recognize because we live in a fallen world, it doesn't always happen that way. But it's what's intended. And I tell them this, here's why you are making vows today. Because the day will come when you're going to need them. Right? If you're like most couples on the planet, the day will come when it is going to cross your mind, you know what, I don't really want to do this anymore. And those vows will seem like a distant memory. And the day is going to come when you stay because you said you'd stay. And I tell them, there are, there are rare people in this world who glide along life in a marriage that seems conflict-free and easy. But that's rare. And nobody likes those people. Okay? <laughs> but the reality is, you make vows because you are expressing I want to reflect the love Jesus has for his people. A love that never leaves, never fails, never gives up, never runs out on me. Do you understand that you're loved that way? Because the reality is some of you have had people run out on you, haven't you? Would it make a difference to know that God never will? That the love of God is permanent. If you have trusted in Jesus Christ, Paul says, look, nothing can separate God from his elect. Nothing. Not even you. God loves you with a love that is permanent. And then lastly, a love that is intimate. Three sixteen to 18. Let me read it again. 
and that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. Here's what he's getting at. I pray that to an increasing degree, ever more and more, you would draw closer to Jesus and understand that love. I hesitated, in fact, to use the word intimate and the reason is because we live in such a, such a sexually saturated culture that intimacy often is only defined as physical or sexual, right? But the reality is if you go to like Webster's, intimacy has this idea of a close affection and knowledge, right? It is emotional and it is spiritual and it is relational. And in a marriage, yes, it is also physical, but intimacy is this growing in an understanding, not only in my mind, but also in my heart of the person that I love. And that's what Paul prays, that you'll know him more and more. And more and more. And Jesus wants to draw closer and closer and closer to you, right? Something else that I tell young men at weddings, going back to 1 Peter, is live with your wife in an understanding way, right? Live with her in an understanding way. So I'll say, look, take out a notebook and write down, here are the things about my wife that make her feel loved. And the more you are married and the longer you are married, ideally you grow in the ability to understand that. That folding laundry is a deeply romantic act. And you understand what you might know in your mind, but you begin to live it out experientially. And that's what Paul says. I pray that for you, that this would not only root itself in your mind, but in your heart and in your life, that you'll know that Jesus wants to know you deeper and deeper and deeper because he loves you unconditionally graciously with a reconciling and permanent love and he wants to draw closer and closer and closer to you in that intimacy that the spirit provides all right so would it make a difference to know that you're loved if you and i knew that we were loved and we we continually reminded ourselves of that reality would it affect how we treat our families would it affect how we engage on facebook and twitter Would it affect our careers and how we treat those around us at the office? I absolutely think it would because I no longer have to grasp to feel loved, but I can extend the love of Jesus Christ. I want to do two quick things then as we close. One is this. I want us to begin this semester thinking about those in our lives toward whom we can extend this love of Jesus Christ. All right, so you may notice on your chairs this morning there was a little card There are two sides to that card, but on on one side it says my two plus two, and then it says near and far. Here's what I want us to do. Think about people in your life who need to know this love. People in your life that you say, "I, I want them to know the love of Jesus Christ, and I want to grow deeper in that love, but I want others to know it. Think of two people who are kind of like you, right? Maybe they're in your family. Maybe they work the same type of job. They're a colleague. They live in your neighborhood. People who are near to you, who are kind of similar to you, right? And write their names down. Right? And then the second one may be a little harder, and you may have to think about it this week. Think of two people who are far from you, right? Far from you. That, that aren't like you. Maybe they're a different race. Maybe they're in a different socioeconomic sort of strata. Maybe they live somewhere else. Maybe they work at a fast food restaurant that you go to, but they're not like you. Maybe they even are an international student from far away. 
right, and write their names down. Right, and what I want us to do, even this morning, ideally, before we go, write down some names. And then on the other side, it says you're two plus two. Turn to a neighbor and say, hey, who are the names I can pray for for you? You can do this kind of as we're singing here at the end. Feel free to jot down some of those names so that we can begin to practice sharing the love of Jesus Christ. And then if you would like, you can uh, drop those cards. I, I don't know if we've got a basket at the back, but if, you, uh, if there's nowhere to drop them at the back this morning, just bring it back next week. And drop it in the offering plate and we'll pray with you. You can make a copy of it and drop it in. And then lastly, we want to celebrate communion as we close as an opportunity to reflect upon the infinite love of Jesus. All right, yeah, so if the men and uh, the band will come back up as we prepare, the gospel of Jesus Christ is the greatest reflection of the love we just talked about. And again, next week, Paul's going to round a corner and he's going to say, in light of this love, I want you to walk in love. But first we need to understand and dwell upon the reality of the the bigness of God's love. So as we celebrate communion this morning and as the men come forward, reflect upon the love of God in Jesus Christ and say thank you for your love. First Corinthians 11, starting in verse 23, Paul wrote, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread... And drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray and then we'll close with the last stanzas of this song about the love of God in Jesus Christ. Father, we're grateful for this morning and grateful for your word. We're thankful most of all for the love you displayed so powerfully toward us in Jesus Christ. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your grace and your kindness. We're overwhelmed and we pray that the love of God would move outward from our hearts into a world where people are in despair and alone for lack of love. That we would be deeply rooted and grounded in the love of Jesus so we can communicate to the world that we're loved. We thank you. We pray all of this in Jesus' name.